Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. I have the passage for you on the insert, although the 16th verse must have been my fault when I sent it to my very talented and very rarely make mistakes administrative assistant. So it had to be me that left verse 16 out. But you have your electronic versions or your hard copy or a pew Bible to look on for verse 16 as well, and I'll read it when we come to it. Uh, By God's providence, we have found ourselves in this Advent season in Isaiah 11. I didn't stop the expositional series that I was uh, endeavored to bring you because we came to this 11th chapter, which is thus far in the book the most specific about the coming Messiah. Chapters uh, 2 refer to the Messiah's coming, 7, of course, and 9, but now in chapter 11, it really lays out the full spectrum. And Isaiah will do this several times, giving more detail each time, depending on what part of Messiah's ministry he is accenting. Remember how it, the perspective of the prophet when he receives the revelation from God that he then gives to the people of God. I think it's important for us to appreciate the timeline. We're often enamored with, when will this happen? That's really never a question that you see the prophets try to answer outright. They just give you the full picture of what God reveals to be true. It's sort of like, as I have said to you before, if you are on the summit of a mountain in the Rockies somewhere, and you're just taking in the view, and you see all the other peaks that are in that beautiful mountain range, uh, they look for that moment when you're on the top of one mountain as though they're very close to you. You can almost reach out and touch them, and it's just a beautiful uh, picture just a a panorama of peaks. But you know, the truth is, if you were to get up overhead of them or alongside on the ground and look, you'd see there might be miles between the peaks. But the prophetic view is like being on top of the, the summit of a mountain and they just see all the peaks and they're telling all that is revealed to them about the glory of the Messiah. So you don't gather the timeline as such, but the fullness of what Messiah will bring. Only over time do you see, as more revelation is given in the Word, sometimes not more as far as when the timeline will work, but you just know it's going to happen. And this serves several purposes. Prophecy serves this. Number one, if you're an unbeliever and you hear this prophecy, it serves to stand against you. You cannot say God didn't warn you about what He would do and who He is. But for the people of God, those who do trust in Christ and believe in His Word, It has other impacts. It convicts us of our sin, and it prompts us by God's Spirit to repentance. That's the driving reason for prophecy, is to bring repentance among sinners. Uh, But it also serves, in conjunction with this, to help us persevere. It encourages us when we know what God will do, when He promises that His hand will deliver something, it gives us an ability to stand up under whatever trial we're facing now. And remember, as long as your life is, it's relatively short. And you will experience the fullness of who Christ is when you go to be with him, if you are in him. So don't think of prophecies as something that will happen thousands of years ago and it doesn't have relevance to you. As long as you have days on the earth, that's as long as this will seem to you. It's far closer than any of us imagine. And for that reason, it should give us perseverance and encouragement. And I think this is true for the passage we read. Though it be 2,700 years old, what it gives the people of God then has a timeless dynamic that speaks to us 
today as well. So here as I read God's holy, infallible, inspired word. Starting at verse 10 of chapter 11, I'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 16. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt." Let us bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, may we, your people, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit working in us, be convicted of our sin. Give us repentance where it is necessary. Lord, please give us perseverance, encouragement from what we see to be true here, what is revealed. Lord, help us to long for the final consummation when Jesus makes all things new and brings a lasting peace, an endless day. Lord, guard us from loving the stuff of this short life too much or to the point that it distracts us from what you have us to be doing. Give us wisdom because we don't know the difference on our own. Please, Heavenly Father, Send your spirit to give us understanding of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to a passage like this, I get lots of questions from people about how this relates to the end times, the second coming of Jesus. I'll hear people use that term, and I understand it, and I appreciate it, and have used it myself. But I've tried to rewire the way I describe that to be more in accord with Scripture, because second coming is a term we use to describe uh, Jesus' final coming. I think it's better to think of his final coming or his consummation of all things would be even better. I know that doesn't, doesn't sound as attractive, but it's really what is true. And what we celebrate at Advent is the coming of the king and his kingdom growing. And The final consummation is the final consummation of his kingdom. He didn't leave only to come back later and pick up where he left off. He left in victory because he rose again and was seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted. And so from that place, he rules his kingdom, and he does so 
uh, by multiplying his presence by sending his spirit to those who trust in him. So it's a, a brilliant, a divinely brilliant way of expanding his presence on the earth by saving people, regenerating us, calling us to himself, giving us his Holy Spirit, and giving us influence on the earth. And he grows his kingdom that way and is growing his kingdom that way until he finally consummates it with his final coming, if you want to call it that. And what we have in this passage is the culmination of his kingdom. It's the final consummation of it all. It's descriptive of this. Not fully or exhaustively descriptive, but it gives us a good picture of what things will finally come to under Christ's reign. Now, he's growing his kingdom. Now you say, well, it doesn't look like it. It feels like, it sure doesn't feel like it. This kingdom is different than every other kingdom on earth. It's way better than every other kingdom. It's more effective because it's not impacted by outside influences or things that would seem to make us smaller. The things that actually work to subdue us grow us. It's not like the kingdoms of earth, like Assyria, who by power come in and subjugate a people and by dominance and force say, this is our kingdom. Jesus' kingdom works from the inside of a person out, and he subdues people for himself, who become a people for himself, and it transcends all the borders and all the normal ways in which we think of nations and kingdoms, and it pervades all nations, tribes, and tongues. And when people try to put it down, it actually grows more. And it will finally grow till that day when God consummates all things by Christ making them right. And that's the picture that is painted here and in other places in Isaiah throughout the Old Testament and then pictured even further in the New. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. goes back to the passage that we uh, read and studied already about the nations coming and wanting to know of God, to, in Isaiah 2, worship him know of his ways, the Gentiles even, people from all tribes and tongues. What I love about Advent hymnody is that it doesn't just capture the one aspect of Jesus' life, even though we tend to relegate singing them to Advent itself, about his birth as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem and so on. But the really solid Advent hymns capture the significance of his birth in the hymn itself. We don't think about it as much because we're keying in on him as a baby. But the reality is the hymn writers get it. They understand that the significance of him coming this way is that it begins his kingdom that is perpetuating. And we're in the continuum of his history of redemption. He's moving redemption, and we fit in that continuum. Farther down the line, we don't know how close it is to consummation, but we're way farther along than where Isaiah was. But still we recognize much of this is yet to come. And so we have this beautiful picture of in that day, and the hymn writers get it very right as they note in the hymns we sing. O come, O come, Emmanuel, for example. The verse that we sing, O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. There's a focus on what the king does for us. He delivers us to a heavenly home. And come, thou long-expected Jesus, Born thy people to deliver, born a child yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. They don't see him as coming as a baby and then later becoming the king. He's come. Now the king has to do the work of 
redemption for us on the cross. But he's the king, and he's the one who brings us. As the second Adam representing us, he's the king of us, and he goes to the cross for us and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and his kingdom starts as soon as he comes. He brings the kingdom with himself. And it came upon a midnight clear. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets, bards foretold. When with the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold, forecasting this final messianic kingdom. When peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. See how these hymns that we sing capture the culmination of Jesus' coming, the significance of Jesus' coming. Good Christian men rejoice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save, calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. One of the verses of the song we sing every week to close our service, All My Heart This Night Rejoices. Dearest Lord, will I cherish, though my breath fail in death, yet I shall not perish, but with thee abide forever there on high in that joy which can vanish never. So the, the to- sum total of our Advent celebration is the king. The king has come and the king is coming. And the king is working his kingdom and he will consummate it. And we will be gathered to him. The Messiah will finally deliver all his people safely home in a final glorious exodus. And I use the word exodus because it's the word Isaiah uses to compare what this will be like. Let's look at the first few verses and see how he calls his people to a a glorious assembly on that great day. Again, a day that's not as far off as you think. It says in verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So he will be lifted up and manifested as a banner for the peoples. Uh, He will be a sign or a signal for the people. He is an ensign, as it says in some passages. He will draw people to himself on that final day. In the beginning of the passage that we're studying, notice it's not just the Jews. Now, the Jews are in immediate view because they're the ones under such duress. Assyria is coming down, uh, terrorizing Judah by their presence in the north. They've all but taken the north, and it's been violent. And the way that they would subjugate a nation is they would come in and stir up the leadership, kill the leadership, and then they would take people and send them to other nations that they had conquered and mix people up so they couldn't have their own identity, and they would have to fall into the Assyrian identity. And the south is watching this happen to the north, and they're terrified. So they need a particular word, and God's going to give that to them. But this is a timeless passage for the people of all time. And you see the Gentiles, who are far from the minds of the Israelites, the Gentiles are being located in this assembly. Back in Isaiah chapter 2, early on in the prophecy, Isaiah writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the, Lord, uh, the, mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above all the hills. And it says this, All the nations shall flow to it. So it's God's intention that he is the God of all tribes, tongues, and people. 
he uses Israel to bring the word and to bring the seed of the woman who will be Messiah through that nation. So it's very special. But God's intention is to bring people to himself from all tribes and tongues. It says in Isaiah 2, And many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. People from all tribes and tongues will recognize the true God who gives salvation through Messiah. Messiah will be present and will be ruling. You know, you know this so closely aligns with something Jesus said about himself. It connects back to something that happened with Moses, and then Jesus says it, and then Isaiah confirms it for the future yet. You remember when Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness and told all the Jews who were being bit by the sna- bitten by the snakes to look at it? And if they looked, they would live. If they didn't look, they'd die. So they had to look to the serpent being raised to live. So Jesus comes, and he's raised up on the cross, and we are to look and to live. In fact, that's an exact picture of what Messiah would pro- provide for all who would look and live. And so Jesus says in John 12, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is the king speaking. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now Isaiah sees Messiah lifted up. But Isaiah doesn't have the full picture in this particular oracle that we're reading about how that exactly looks. Jesus, we know, has to be lifted up. And Isaiah understands that the Messiah must suffer, but he's lifted up on the cross. We look and we live, and anybody who looks upon Christ and believes lives. And that's a picture of the final consummation when Jesus, in that day, comes and is assigned to the nations, and people come to him. What drew you to Jesus, by the way? What drew you? What made you say, yeah, I'm a Christian? No doubt, if you study the life of Jesus, there are many things that would draw us to him. Jesus was a teacher like no other teacher ever. He was wise beyond all who came before and all who have come since. Jesus was compassionate and effective. He was a healer, more so than anyone uh, we've ever witnessed. All sorts of things that would draw you to him. He had miraculous command over nature. Even with his word, he could stop the wind. He could raise a dead person. Jesus had power like no one else. These things would draw us to him if we would see and read about his life and the account thereof. But the draw of Jesus that's most powerful for you, I'm sure, and is absolutely most powerful to me, it's the cross. It's what he did on the cross for me and for you. To look upon him and live because we know that he took our place and received the wrath of God in our stead to know our sins are paid for because he perfectly paid for them. That's what draws me to Jesus. It's the cross. And this is why as we read in the passage, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples, a sign for the peoples. You notice, though, that there is some specific reference here, as you would imagine. The Israelites, Judah in particular, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was all but gone now, as far as they're being occupied by Assyria. There is some particular promises made to the Israelites who believe. Now, I want to stress who believe. 
we start to understand the full definition of what it is to be part of Israel unfolds in Scripture. We learn from Paul that those who trust in Christ, they are the true sons and daughters of Abraham, the true Israel of God. But at this time, the nation's thinking of itself as God's chosen people just simply as a nation. But God's saying there's a remnant in that nation. I'm going to bring judgment and take away the identity of the nation, but I will preserve a remnant. And the remnant is identified by their faith in the Messiah, by their belief in the message that God gives, not hardening their hearts to what he says. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of their hardness of heart. But even in the midst of those ethnic Jews, there were some who did believe in Messiah. The only way anybody's saved, ethnic Jew or otherwise, is by faith in the Messiah. It's the only hope anyone has. But the Jews were hardened in their hearts. And that was evident by all that God had done. And yet they still rejected him. Verse 11 says, In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He, so he has called the nations to himself. But he will extend his hand a second time, almost a special effort to recover the remnant that remains of his people. The remnant, those who believed in him. A, a special, you might say, effort on the part of God to identify those who were part of that nation that was given such privilege in those days of old, in the days that we have before us in the text. And he will at some point bring to himself, by giving them faith in the Messiah, by giving them belief in what he has revealed, he will call them to himself. I believe this connects well with what it says in Romans when Paul is speaking of salvation and the application of redemption. And in Romans 11, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how, it, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah saying, bring down the judgment on everybody. They deserve it. But Paul reminds us in Romans eleven four. but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I think there is a special hand of God's salvation shown, more glory going to him, where he gives regeneration, faith in Christ, to those who are of Israel. Verse 12 He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What a great and glorious picture of salvation this will be in the final consummation. When God, the Son, calls all who are redeemed to himself and then he additionally calls from those people who were stiff-necked and hard-hearted against him even part of the crucifixion itself, and he calls members of that nation to himself by faith. All glory goes to God. No possible person could stand up and say, we deserve this. What a show of God's grace. That's what we learn from this passage also. I want you to look closely at a theme in verse 11. Verse 12, uh, chapter 12 will unpack this 
further, but before us is chapter or is verse 11. And just notice the first phrase. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Whenever God uses uh, this analogy or this metaphor of his hand to describe his action, you just know what's going to happen. I mean, you can't imagine uh, it being anything like two equals who are in a boxing match and they can block each other's hands. Nobody can block God's hand when it's extended against or for you. It's God's sovereignty, his complete power to do what he wills and to accomplish it by his hand, by his power, by his ability. It kind of reads like uh, Isaiah 9. Remember when he talks about Jesus as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He's going to bring this child forth, this son who is given. In the last verse, after you read this here, this is an amazing thing that God would do. And it says, for assurance, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You just know it will happen. If he says it's going to happen, it will happen. It's nothing like you and I when we make promises. We mean well. We fully intend to do it. We, everything in us says we're going to do it, and it just takes a little distraction. We don't. God never does this. When he lifts his hand to do something, he finishes the work that he lifts his hand to do. Salvation is by the hand of the Lord, from the very first person redeemed and saved to the very last. You know, this is a difficult doctrine for many people to hear. I think it is people want some aspect of themselves wrapped up in salvation. Like, you know, yes, God did most everything, but I, I chose this, or I, I did this. And what they don't realize is if you have 99% of God doing it, but yet that 1% is just that foothold in, it still comes down to you being the trigger. And God doesn't give us any room to be the trigger. And that's praise to him, because if we could not be saved, or if, we, if salvation was based on something we chose to do, we would never cho- choose it, and we would never do it. It's the only hope we have is that he be sovereign in salvation. But yet people get, even Christians, will get uncomfortable about the idea that he's completely sovereign. But that's really a fleshly drive in us that makes us not like that. It, just, it doesn't seem right to us. It's not fair. We want just a little bit of what it took to save us, even if it's just reaching out to grab it. MacArthur puts it very well and bluntly, as he does so often, but it's true. No doctrine is more despised by the natural mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Human pride loathes the suggestion that God orders everything, controls everything, and rules over everything. The carnal mind, burning with enmity against God, abhors the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass except according to his eternal decrees. Most of all, flesh hates the notion that salvation is entirely God's work. If God chose who would be saved, and if his choice was settled before the foundation of the world, then believers deserve no credit for any aspect of their salvation. And it's true, we don't. It's all for God's glorious display. It's not like this is just a theme that pops up in one chapter in Isaiah. Jesus says to those who are listening to him after he gives a wonderful sermon... This is why I told you that no one could come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He doesn't have to tell us why. Paul says later, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Well, what it just said. 
being saved by grace through faith. That's not your own doing. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. It's the gift of God. In Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the ancient prophet Jonah, gathered this after the trials that God brought him through. He said, with the voice of thanksgiving will, will I sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the message of Isaiah once again. And you say, well, how do I know if I'm saved? Do you trust upon the Messiah? Do you rest in him? Do you think that the Messiah's righteousness is your only chance to be righteous before God? There's no plan B. That's how you know if you've been saved. In that day, verse 11, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. You know, one of the things that becomes so trying for the Israelites by the time of the prophets is their division. They used to be a powerful nation when they were one. When they were under David, one of the strongest up-and-coming nations around. Nobody wanted to mess with Israel. The stories of the battle victories they had spread far and wide. But when Solomon became king and division came in through his sons and they went to the north and to the south, they became a weaker nation. Both were strong, but not strong enough to head off a unified Assyria or later a unified uh, Babylon or Persia or the Medes and the Persians together unified. They could not take these, these nations any longer. They were split. Division was terrible. But what Messiah promises to do is bring unity back. It's, it's a, a type of the full unity we'll see in the world when paradise is restored and peace. We'll see it with this picture that is painted, this culminating work of the Messiah bringing harmony. Look at verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Remember, remember Ephraim is, is a, a description of the northern kingdom. And the jealousy the north and the south had for each other The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. There won't be a jealousy that exists any longer. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. There will be no more terrorizing or tension about who will take us. There will be complete peace and contentment under Messiah the king. Second part of verse 13. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah not harass Ephraim. This picture of paradise restored with peace in harmony joy to the world, a song we'll sing in just a few moments. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Paradise restored, no more thorns. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse is found everywhere, but he comes and takes the curse away, Messiah does. Verse 14 furthers this picture. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they will They shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. These are all nations that at one time or another oppress God's people. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. This is a clear reference to the greatest exodus the people would have known to this point, and this will be a greater exodus yet, a final exodus. Verse 16, And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, 
as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. It'll be like the Egyptians on the bank of the Red Sea, waiting for God's deliverance in the most powerful nation in the world, the Egyptians closing down on them with their chariots and their armies, and God opens the sea and lets them through. It's going to be like that when Jesus consummates his kingdom for us as we are ushered through and we're able to go to his presence and we'll be safe from all the fears that we have, all the realized fears that we have. And notice the language here to a people who are watching Assyria, still most powerful, Assyria destroying the north, and God saying here through Isaiah, and there will be a highway from Assyria. They'll walk right through that nation you see that's so powerful. And that highway will have on it the remnant of his people that he calls from all the places that they're being dispersed from now. You can see how this would bring them conviction, repentance, encouragement, and perseverance. The Messiah will deliver all his people safely home in a final glorious exodus. Messiah will fulfill the purpose of making God's glory and rule known and realized. This is why our Christmas hymnody captures this feature almost across the board. Angels from the realms of glory, saints before the altar bending, watching long in hope and fear. Remember to delight in the fear of the Lord. Suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. Come and worship. The hymn that we sang second in our service today, it's based on Isaiah 11.1. 1. Lo, how arose air blooming. O Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe. O Savior, King of glory, who dost our weakness know. Bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and to the endless day. Practically speaking, when you gather together as a family and you read the Christmas story, somebody remind everybody after you read it that our king has come. Once in royal David's city, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by that we shall see him, but in heaven set at God's right hand on high when the stars, when like stars his children crowned all in white shall stand around. As with gladness, men of old. What were the men so glad about of old? They didn't have a lot to be glad about when you think about some of these stories. In the heavenly country, bright need they no created light. Thou its light, its joy, its crown, though its sun which goes not down, there forever may we sing alleluias to our king. They walked in a darkness, but now there's a great light. There's so much for us here, brothers and sisters, I can't even begin to unpack it all. We can have a certainty about the eventual vindication of God's holy name among all the nations that should give us strength now to endure whatever comes our way, that God's name will be vindicated and we stand for God's name no matter what happens to us. We can be sure that God will bring about total peace as he promises and pictures in the whole of this chapter. We can be confident This is very practical, that we can be confident in ordering our life priorities based on what is eternally true. It's so easy to get stuck in in decision-making about this temporal world that's fading and not think of what we do in relationship to eternity, and we have a picture of what's coming to pass. This should drive our decisions, not what the neighbor's doing or what seems popular at the moment. Analyze all those things in light of eternity. That's what it's a call to. God's hand brings salvation. All glory is rightfully God's, and it's his alone. 
the consummation of all things, the end times, heaven, the eternal state, glory, whatever you want to call it and describe it. It's coming very soon. I said it last week. I want to say it again. What conception of time passage will we have in eternity? Time's created for now. Now, I don't know the exact answer, but I have, a, a, I hope, a sanctified guess that it won't be like the passage of time we have now. It'll be much more rapid and much more immediate. So for as many years as you have on earth, that's really as long as you have to wait for the things that are pictured in Scripture. I mean, do you think that, that uh, Bernard of Clairvaux in the 11th century, when he died, he's just waiting, like knitting, waiting for us to come? And then, or did immediately glory, did he come upon glory in the presence of God? How is that passage of time for him? I only say to you that it's not that far away like you might think it is. Now he could come for the final consummation while we're still alive. And that will be even quicker. He can. It's imminent. However, if he doesn't, none of us are going to live that long. And it will be here. And we'll recognize. And we'll see that the hymn writer got it right. One of the greatest hymns ever. The one we'll sing to end. Joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace. And makes the nations prove. The glories of his righteousness. He'll prove his righteousness by what he does in that day. And also, don't forget this. He'll also prove to us the wonders of his love. Let's pray. Lord God, give us a proper perspective on reality. Help us to see with with heavenly eyes that the time is short. The consummation of all things is not far away. Each of us, O Lord, stand on the precipice of eternity and will soon see your total redemption realized. Lord, in light of this true vision of things, help us to live our lives differently. Help us to live our lives according to your calling and your purpose. Give us a zeal to see your name known and people come to rest in the Messiah. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.